Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner. Welcome to this week's macro call from Washington, where predominance of the call will be on trade. Trade, uh, we had a major report and plan out of the Biden administration, major developments with China, Europe, Latin America. Leading the call today is our lead international analyst, Chris Zerwinski. Joining Chris is our, our head of research, John East. Also, Bart Oostervelt comes to ACG Analytics by way of Moody's Sovereign Risk will join us on EM. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Zerwinski. Chris? Thanks, David. You know, I think that, you know, we, we cover, we tend to cover the world, but I'd love to, as we always do, start in D.C., John. We have to touch on reconciliation and pandemic relief. Where are we? What what has changed between last week and this week? And are, are we still on track for a final agreement with final passage in the next week and a half? Probably. So the Senate was supposed to begin debate yesterday on the pandemic relief measure. It did not happen. Senate convenes today at 12, at which point the debate should begin. Senator Johnson of Wisconsin, though, he objected to what is usually a perfunctory motion to dispense with the reading of amendments, which means that unless he withdraws his objection, every amendment has to be read to the bill. That's, that's going to delay the consideration of the bill that does not count toward the limited hours of debate. And then we go to Votorama at the end of the process. So what looked like it might wrap up on Friday and get sent over to the House, it may take a couple more days. But the House and Senate should still meet the March 14th deadline. That that's positive. It feeds into leadership's plan. Now, the question is, John, you know, we've had this internal debate for quite some time. Do they immediately move and capitalize on momentum to move into infrastructure? And, you know, will the Biden administration then lay out their big, bold infrastructure plan? Or do they give us some time, you know, maybe in a more detailed manner, more methodical manner, lay out infrastructure and move on it towards the end of this year? Well, I think the end of this year is a bit too far. I think Democrats do want to proceed expeditiously to an infrastructure package. There are some concerns within the Democratic caucus about how to do this. There's also the question of what can and cannot be done under reconciliation. President Biden was supposed to release his proposal last month, as we said a few weeks ago, that deadline uh, was not going to be met. Well, the White House has said that they're not going to release anything until after pandemic relief passed, but there may or may not be a quasi-State of the Union speech this year, and so I'm anticipating sometime in March we're going to get the details of what the administration is proposing. And what made me interested today was that DeFazio in the House has indicated that he does not think that a infrastructure package can be done through reconciliation. And that is very impactful because leadership is basing, at least theoretically, this next infrastructure proposal on DeFazio's House infrastructure bill that was around $1.5 trillion. So if he doesn't think he can go through reconciliation, you know, what are the mechanics behind that and what does that mean for his future? Parts of what would be in an infrastructure proposal would emanate from the bill that Chairman DeFazio, he's the chairman of the Transportation Infrastructure Committee, released last year. But a large portion of those have already been passed, different forms, and so we are expecting a new proposal. But it's not really clear that you cannot pass an infrastructure bill through reconciliation, but if Democrats want to be bipartisan, I welcome that. 
the Senate parliamentarian ruled earlier this week was that a demonstration project was not eligible under reconciliation rules, and there was another bridge project that she also found not related to strictly to coronavirus belief. So her opinions are not published. It's difficult to know exactly how this would affect what you can or cannot do under reconciliation on the Senate side, and therefore under reconciliation. But you can pass an infrastructure bill through reconciliation. The question is whether you can earmark specific proposals as opposed to the general matter of changing taxes and revenues spending as part of the budget process to allow more money for an infrastructure bill uh, writ large. And so basically, you know, we'll get more information on this moving forward, as you said, maybe at a quasi-stated union address, but most certainly after they pass, after they pass pandemic relief. Now, John, moving to trade, I was um, following very closely this trade agenda document by administration drop through the USTR, United States Trade Rep, an all-encompassing document. It covers everything from, you know, China to digital tax to specific labor ideas that they want to, you know, work on moving forward. One of the things that caught my eye was the idea that a carbon adjustment tax might be part of their trade agenda moving forward. Now, obviously, we're far from any type of serviceable carbon adjustment tax. It would, it would take a long time. There'd be a lot of important parties that need to weigh in on this and what it would look like for the United States. But talking about a carbon adjustment tax in the context of trade, is that something that can be included in a, in a trade agreement down the line? Or is that something that is going to be passed in the United States as part of like an infrastructure package too, and then get wrapped into future trade negotiations? Well, I think it's a bit premature to say how that could unfold, unfortunately. I don't have a good answer for you. It could be something that just affects the United States. It could also be some type of prerequisite to negotiations as part of other trade deals. We don't have a proposal in front of us. The Congress has not voted, so I would reserve comment at this time. So I was just trying to think conceptually how, how they might move with that. But, yeah, no, I agree that it's definitely too early to tell. Now, USCR nominee Ty also testified last week for Senate Finance in her nomination hearing and, you know, predictably laid out the Biden administration's agenda. And this largely in, in line with what we've been talking about, an emphasis on multilateral coordination and a desire to work with Europe was pervasive in pretty much every area of the Biden administration's trade policy outside of, let's say, the USMCA, for example. Bart. You know, does Europe have the same desire to work with the United States to address global issues like China? Yeah, on a, on a long list of topics, the answer is yes. You have to look for exceptions. You know, there's a few. We, we can talk about them later, like North Stream 2. But there's a big desire in, on the part of the EU Commission and on the part of national governments to collaborate with the U.S. on China's trade practices in particular. I think you see, you know, simultaneously the U.S., the EU, and China look for supply chain independence across multiple industries. You know, the Chinese are getting together this weekend to talk about that more and to base their five-year plan on it. So I I think China is a, an area of logical cooperation, and the most likely way that that will probably happen is a reinvigoration of the trilaterals, the EU, Japan, U.S., opposing China's trade practices in the WTO and, and elsewhere. That's work that was started by uh, by Secretary Mnuchin at the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires, I believe, in 2017 or 2018. So I think that process will get a shot in the arm, and, and that's uh, where a lot of that work will take place. Does this EU-China investment agreement get in the way of anything with the United States moving forward, or was that pretty much symbolic? It's not symbolic. I think you know everybody needs an investment agreement with China, but everybody makes a lot of money in China. So I, I think the Biden administration is able to, to look past it. 
most countries, they're, you know, the big companies have a significant stake in the Chinese economy. If you uh, look at the EU, it's uh, everyone from German car industry in the U.S., and it's the big financial services firms, the big sports leagues, and, the, and Hollywood that also make a lot of money in China. So everybody has deep economic ties to China. So I don't, I don't think a single agreement should stop the U.S., the EU, and Japan from addressing trade practices by China that we all uh, find more nefarious. One of the things that was interesting to me in Ty's testimony was that when asked, and I can tell you that much of the hearing itself was focused on China, it, it was interesting to me that when asked specifically about individual provisions, whether they be the expectation for future trade negotiations or whether or not the administration plans to lift some of Trump's 301 tariffs on China, Ty was very circumspect in, in saying that you know we're still undergoing the strategic review of these legacy trade and investment actions, but at the same time that you know largely we think that we're going to keep these things. So it's even what we've been talking about for you know months and months, which is that not much is going to change here with China and that those tariffs are going to form the basis of the negotiating platform for the Biden administration moving forward, gives them some leverage uh, to come off of in the future for, you know, whether it be more market access or, you know, for this broader reform agenda. I, I found it interesting that she basically reaffirmed that, yes, in fact, we are intending to, to keep a lot of these things. Just one more comment on that. The tariffs are staying here by and large because they didn't prevent companies that make the most money in China from making money in China. And the U.S. consumer paid for them, but during a time that the dollar was strong and, and the global purchasing power of the U.S. consumer wasn't threatened. I think that makes a lot of sense. When you say that, I don't see that necessarily, that, that paradigm moving forward at all. And so that would be something to keep in mind when they start doing any further negotiations is where are those commercial interests that could potentially be affected this time? And, you know, that to me means that there's probably not a whole lot of wiggle room for more aggressive policy. Just back to Europe part in the last week and a half or so, the Yellen Treasury Department has kind of backed off of this more aggressive U.S. position on digital taxation framework. So the OECD is, you know, has had these negotiations that are on have been ongoing for, for months. And the Trump administration consistently, you know, pushed back on Pillar 1, which is basically the safe harbor provision, which allows tax on profit in jurisdiction of, you know, where the profits derived as opposed to just where the company's headquarters is, right? And the Trump administration pushed back on that. Yellen seems to be moving the other direction, saying, you know, we would be potentially okay with this. You know, what does that mean for digital taxation framework moving forward? And I'm, I mean, I'm assuming that the Europeans are very happy to hear the Treasury, you know, change their tune. No, the, the Europeans were quite relieved, especially the Italians who are currently holding the presidency of the, um, the G20. And Yellen went quite a bit further than just to remove the obstacle. She said she wanted to see a draft global agreement by July. So there was also, you know, a sincere attempt from Treasury. To, to regain some leadership on the topic and arrive, I, I think she used the word the global minimal tax, which if, if they take a leadership position to preserve the U.S.'s ability to shield its own companies from massive impact. So I think that's where they're trying to move it. I think they're trying to take leadership in the debate and at the same time kind of keep the interests of, of the big American uh, tech companies in mind. In short, I don't think the tech companies have lost their clout in Washington. I think the strategy is different, but the government is still fairly firmly on their side. Sure, the tech companies haven't lost their clout, but inevitably this moving forward with this would negatively impact, you know, U.S. tech giants, right? So, I mean, how do they craft this provision in a way that makes them happy and that does not adversely impact their operations to, you know, an overwhelming degree? I look at that question, I'm like scratching my head. It seems to me like inevitably by Treasury backing off of any, you know, opposition that, you know, there's no way to get out of a negative hit to the, to the profitability. 
just keeping the obstacle there, you lose control of the debate as well, right? And Europe especially was moving quite aggressively. So I think it's it's also just a, an attempt to regain a seat at the table diplomatically. I think it's a strategy shift more than anything else. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. You want to be at the table when they're discussing the, the changes. You don't want to be just absent from the table and let whatever deal co- coalesce around you without you. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.